On this week's episode of Third Culture Africans, my guest is Chichi Ekriozo, the founder of Ascenti. Oftentimes we wonder about the people behind some of the simple tools that we have used over the years, and most importantly, actually, the tools that have kept us connected throughout the last 18 months through pandemics, social changes, economical changes. And I wanted to sit with a guest who would be able to give us an insight into how someone ends up in that career and knowing more so about the opportunities that, you know, black African girls being able to code makes a huge difference in terms of startup costs and also potentially where they can be. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with Chichi because it was quite an important one for me to sit. And and there's a lot of technical speak in it. If you're into tech, do a little bit of Googling and enjoy the possibilities of what the future looks like once we have more of ourselves in these careers and in these rooms. Welcome to another episode of Third Culture Africans. I am your host, Zezo Sal. I created the show as a resource for our community of Africans and African diaspora. A safe and honest place to share, inspire, motivate, and most importantly, celebrate those in our communities doing purposeful work and shifting the needle on our culture. Your support is invaluable to the show, so please subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform. You are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started. Thank you, Chichi, for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Thank you for having me, Susie. Fab. Well, I must apologize for sounding um, a little nasally. The after effects of the great weather we had in the UK means that I've had lots of um, allergies and it's left me with sinusitis. So, But just to jump in, um, we were sort of talking before I hit record about, I guess, women in tech, but actually I digress. Each guest on the episode gets an intro from me where I talk a little, well, I, I give them an introduction, um, citing some of their great accomplishments over the years. So essentially, Chichi is the founder and CEO of Ascenti Limited, which is also Ascenti.com. It's an incredible platform that allows live events and conferences to really interact with their audiences in real time. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. In this episode. I think I, I, I go into each season having sort of thoughts of what sort of conversations do I think we should be having what sort of conversations do I feel are needed, especially in our communities, to demystify certain careers, certain career paths, certain journeys? And I think female tech and business, I, I feel like if you typed in female tech business into Google, you'd explode in terms of search, search options and stories. But I think what's key is within our community talking about these journeys and especially the fact that, you know, we sit back and we look and look, the world is digital. Lockdown has probably spurred us on a good decade ahead of where we probably would have been pre-pandemic life. 
But I think it's important to start having those conversations, especially with people like yourself who have been in the industry for the last 15 years, wearing slightly different hats, but also having conversations around how you've arrived there and starting to talk more around, I guess, the clear statistics that drive these conversations. And also the fact that to some extent, the tech industry has been very male dominated and and also geographic, geographically dominated. And we're starting to see a democratization of the landscape, but still very little conversation around what that means for a young black African girl. So a few statistics being, you know, less than 2% of girls or women who go to university end up taking a, you know, technically led degree, like computer science, etc. Also, you know, women and girls still make um, up to 70% of the people living on less than a dollar a day. And then you look at an industry like, you know, digital or anything tech related, and with a computer, some skills, and the internet, you are able to empower, you know, a large chunk of women. And I think perhaps maybe that's where the conversation starts to get really interesting and where this upskill can start to happen. But I think I have a ton of stuff that I think we'll we'll probably discuss. And we started talking about, you know, your passion around helping further some of these conversations and these causes. But I would love to, to sort of turn to sort of the beginning of your journey and how you started into your tech career. And I, and I say that loosely because I think your career has evolved over time, but it'll be lovely to hear, you know, how, I guess, your origins, your educational journey, what you've considered. And, and, I, and I know you're probably going to have to repeat yourself because you kind of mentioned this earlier, but it would be great to, to get it to get it on air. Cool. Yeah, I like... I like the way you've broken down, you know, the conversation. And I'll certainly start with, with origins. So I was born in Nigeria, and I guess it's to start properly at the beginning. When I was about eight or nine, my mum asked me, oh, what would you like to do when you grow up? And I thought, oh, I think at the time, I'm sure at the time I said, I'll, I'll be a musician. I've got an interest in music. But my mum turned to me and said, you know, yeah, you can do that as a hobby. What would you like to do? And I thought, well, okay, you're a doctor. I'll be a doctor. And I had that, you know, as what I'm out potentially want to do when I started picking courses and deciding to study. In my early teens, we moved to Newcastle in the UK. And it was when I started picking, um, you know, subjects for A-levels, having kind of done what I was doing at GCSE, just out of interest, I did music GCSE and a bunch of things that um, I did alongside all the other, all the other, you know, subjects. At the parents' evening, my design and technology teacher said to my dad, you know, um, if Chi-Chi's now considering architecture, I missed out a slight, slightly important section in there, actually. At at some stage, I decided I didn't want to do medicine because I didn't like the smell of hospitals, but I enjoyed drawing and things like that and Lego. So I thought, you know, architecture might be a nice thing to do. So when I was picking um, courses for A-level initially, I thought, yeah, architecture sounds cool. And it came up at a parents' teacher's uh, evening thing at school. And this is like, Newcastle up and Tyne in the 90s and my design and technology teacher uh, effectively the person that was teaching me the closest to engineering at that stage um, he, he said to my dad you know 
in the UK, architecture is an old boys network. She's probably going to struggle. So maybe consider other options. And after that, my dad and I uh, was speaking about it. And, and my dad said, you know, he's probably right. You know, he's not being awkward. He's probably just speaking the truth here. So maybe think about uh, engineering or something related to engineering. Um, at the time, I think because we were talking design and technology, I was already into I was in that, I was doing that subject because I liked um, trying to put things together and trying to build things. And so it made a lot of sense for my dad to suggest, actually, maybe engineering is a thing you, you'd really enjoy doing. Um, and so at the time I thought, well, I don't want to do civil engineering. I've got an uncle who does that, um, too much stuff outdoors, um, heavy engineering. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do mechanical. It doesn't sound new enough. So I settled on electrical slash electronic and I ended up going to York University to study electronic and communication engineering. Um, along the way, I took a gap year because I missed out on the grades to uh, study, I think it was called engineering and computing science at Oxford. So I did all the A-levels and I was primed to do something very, very numerate, you know, very sort of rational thinking and focus. And, and the reason, one of the big drivers for me doing all that was I'd, I'd started to hear a lot about all these dot-com millionaires and these people that are making huge amounts of money from um, inventing things and um, getting them onto this thing called the internet. So Yahoo was sort of creating millionaires. Google was doing the same. I thought, so if I study this, you know, literate, safe subject, then I'll get a good job and then I can be a musician because that's actually what I want to do. So that was that was my journey into it. So um, I I did five years at York Uni uh, and it's five years because I did a placement year at a company called Nortel Networks um, in Essex and that year was was critical because at the time I was at Nortel the they were starting to help ISPs and well instant service providers the likes of BT and TalkTalk and companies um, like that to build out their fiber optic comms networks so they were connecting cities um with fiber optic cable to these massive network operating centers and within the lab. So within where, where we were actually based in Essex, the R and D lab, we could do things online that we take for granted now. Well, this is like the early noises. This is be, uh, just before um, 9-11. Oh my goodness. So I worked for British Telecom and I was a network integration engineer for a year. Oh, how did that work? How did you? <laughs> I love that. How did that work? <laughs> You you literally just painted a picture of a memory for me. So I, I didn't say this um, in the early parts of our conversation. My first degree is actually in informatics. And I, I had a brief stint working as a network integration engineer. And, and those um, simulation rooms bring up lots of memories because you end up crawling on your hands and knees between cables, trying to replicate in a tiny room what the network of the country's you know, internet or telephone line provisions would look like. But I, I I digress. You literally just painted an incredible picture in my mind. And I, I feel like I can still picture the light in, in one of those rooms because they were in a different building and you'd have to walk across the car park, actually two car parks to get to the room. And you'd spend, you know, two days in there. No one would know where you were because you'd literally be sitting there and then going to a terminal computer and running tests 
waiting for the data. But yeah, I digress. I'll, I'll let you. That's funny. <laughs> Brilliant. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. So, so the, the irony, actually, the delicious irony is that I actually turned BT down to, to do a placement at Nortel. Stop so it. I'm not even joking. <laughs> I, I'm not even joking. And at the time, it felt like, um, you know, um, going to this Canadian company, like BT is the one everybody wants to go to. But the, the, the timing of it, I think, I think I went to Nortel because I could go straight from uni and just start the placement. I think with BT there was a gap or something. So I started the placement rather than sort of going, you know, on holiday and then starting at the start of the university term. I started on holiday, you know, during like July or whatever, which is nice because they're obviously paying you to, to be there. So, yeah, fascinating. That's really interesting. Yeah, there, I remember those, um, those rooms. Nortel had them in the same building because it was like a, a research. Uh, this is it's an R&D sort of campus so they had them in different buildings amazing yeah but the gist of it was that whole season um got me to experience sort of watching video files you know at my desk um watching live concerts and doing pretty much what we do now uh, online constantly switched on you know connected to the internet um doing that in 2001 when most people were still on dial-up and that primed me for what ended up being a big step in in focus for me. So I finished my degree, I got a job in, in Manchester working for a startup that was spun out of the University of Manchester's computer science department. And the background is that my degree is not computer science. It's got some software engineering elements to it, but it is electronic engineering. So I got into that role um, partly because of, of sort of the thorough preparation you get at York but mostly I think just because of the the attitude of deciding to want to, to program but I didn't feel I was a programmer they, they were hiring people who had an engineering background but a lot of my um a lot of the people at that company it was a it was basically spun out from a couple of PhDs work at um, the University of Manchester and it was Intel Capital funded and they basically had as employee number eight and they had the the selection of people with first degrees in computer science from UMIST and Manchester University, literally as the cohort of people that they were they'd employed, and then me and I think there's another lady from Manchester, and it was a very small team of really really smart uh, programmers, but they had the computer science background. I, I didn't feel I had that, and so that whole sort of period of kind of starting my first job, feeling okay, I'm now working in in something that's a stable environment sort of financially, but I don't feel necessarily like I've got the skill set compared to, you know, these guys who've all got firsts and who have computer science degrees. And uh, kind of them actually encouraged me, look, you actually have all the prerequisites for doing well in this. It's just you don't have the experience as a programmer. And it was the it was the groundwork that I got from being in that company, um, learning learning to develop the platform they were creating. So they were making software for designing um, silicon chips, process microprocessors. So the the actual sector is electronic design automation. And for any IT nerds out there, it's very, it's low-level programming. You're, ma- you're making software that would effectively replace the clock system on a microprocessor so it's software that someone like Xilinx or Intel or Toshiba would use to design their um, 
microprocessors. So, you know, we're putting, putting together Linux boxes to, to do what we wanted to do, to be able to um, test what we're developing on um, FPGAs, which is like, yeah, let's not let's talk about this. But my, yeah. but my, yeah, my engineering background was 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 particularly useful because this was actually electronics focused. Mm. Um, but I I didn't feel like I had that sort of hobbyist attitude around programming that the rest of the team had, and it, I didn't feel yeah. it was creative either. So so I then like fourteen months into it, I quit to start a live music video podcast. Incredible. Yeah, it was very naive, but. Um, the the trigger for that was all that time at Nortel. So at Nortel, um, all that experience, sort of watching live video at my desk, and you know, using the web, pretty much at any point I'd, of the day that I wanted, compared to you know having to get home and be on dial up and stuff, and not be able to be on the phone whilst we're on the internet, all that stuff that we used to have to do. When I when I heard that the first company to get a video podcast onto the iTunes music store that's what they used to call it then that company got a million downloads in 24 hours I thought wow suddenly this vision of like an always on switched on happy connected internet that I experienced that you know at no time my placement yet it's going to start happening we now have a distribution channel for people who are willing to to get podcasts and who've got you know iPods You've, you've got access to them that is free from advertising. If you create content, as you know, as a podcaster, you can build an audience. And I was thinking all this in 2006. <laughs> yeah, so early. It was too so early. early. It was too early. So, so, but I did sort of follow through what I had anticipated with wanting to be a musician and um, have the safety of, the, you know, the, the safety net of a, an engineering background um, because – Essentially, what I did was I would organize music events in Manchester. I was, at the time, I was doing quite a lot on the circuit, as it were, with my acoustic guitar. I'd, I'd done some recording at uni. Like at York, you could study electronic engineering with music technology. I believe you still can do. So they had a, a music studio, and I'd been sort of trying to record myself. I hadn't had, like, you know, yeah, all these aspirations of yeah. releasing this album that I'd made all myself. And, and yes. <laughs> at York, I was trying – I was – piecing it together and doing stuff on the circuit and studying, mm. but moved to Manchester and obviously this is the music city. I can, I can do more. Um, but the podcast, it was really good fun. I'd, I played one or two episodes of them, but the gist of it was I was finding really good sort of independent musicians from, from Manchester and, and, and around, around the area. And we'd have this TV style sort of show where we'd film them record, their performances, we'd interview them. And at the time, you know, later with Jules Holland was a thing. Um, T-Mobile had this show on TV called Transmission with with T-Mobile. And that was pretty much it. There wasn't a huge outlet for independent music. And so I thought, you know, I've got this understanding around podcasting and around creating my content. All I need to do now is find sponsors. And so I managed to get to meet T-Mobile and I, I mentioned them for a reason. And they were like, yeah, we've got this show on Channel 4. Uh, here's all our content for it. You know, just you do what you want with it. Um, we've got a MySpace page. So we, yeah, we're, we're doing what we can with the kids. We spent £150,000 on that page. Um, and uh, But what's a podcast? And so I had to sort of, it was really hard. I had to kind of explain to them um the technology yeah because because podcasting was a thing in the u.s but it hadn't caught on anywhere else at the time no no not at all and the really interesting sort of 
dynamic at the time as well was what was happening with what we now call social media at the time it was all social networking so um twitter was was being sort of i think i think twitter launched in 2004 possibly 2005 it was starting to get well known um in the states Facebook was very much if you were a student you heard about it but if you if you did if you weren't you just didn't know much about it MySpace was was a thing and this thing called YouTube was getting sued so so T-Mobile didn't know what to do with the this notion of a podcast particularly because what I was doing was creating the content and then asking them to sponsor it um which was always difficult because by the time we've edited it oh, it has to go live um you know, it's old content by the time I meet with them. Um, so they said, actually, we can see you get what's going on in this space. So we'll give you your, you know, the content from a video production company that normally lives, you know, in a box somewhere after it's gone on onto Channel 4. You can put it on the internet for us. And, and they, they did. They gave me these videos. And I got to meet people at YouTube on the back of that. YouTube was, was about to be sued at the time, if you remember. So they were like, we would have we would have been like one of their first content partners, and they sent me all the stuff. It was really interesting, but the gist of it was that that the, those tapes and that, that content belonged to the video production company, and so even if I, you know, created school fees, a, school fees, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is school fees, and in, in 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 sort of, and I think I love that you're sharing this because there's something about, and and I guess somewhere in our conversation around innovation and ownership. But I love that you're sharing this because I think seldomly do people sort of know what happens in the beginning, right? Like where you start to earn your stripes in the beginning, which is through experiences like this. But sorry, I will. No, 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 no. It was really, really interesting because you, you talked about school fees. Like, what, what transpired out of the interactions with the team about was actually they were happy to pay for um, social media training workshops. They were like teachers about, you know, podcasting and about myspace and and what we do with the twitter account uh, but they didn't they didn't really get all of it enough to throw themselves into it it was also still too early for them and the i wasn't clued up enough at the time around um sort of you know being a, a third party agency to uh, you know a video production company that knew nothing about google and, and youtube and and this exploding um interest in watching content on a on a web page um and people that were used to the tv to production process i i didn't get that i could have been an intermediary to get them into um you know a massively popular branded page on youtube and so when youtube sent me out google sent me you know emails going so where's it what's your bank account details for this content we have i was like yeah it's not my content people <laughs> it's not mine i've been because because the the video production company that was doing it for T-Mobile is is re- reputable. They do other things on on TV, and all the events I got involved with through T-Mobile for this, they were using you know signed artists. I don't know if you remember a guy called Micah. Was it Micah? Or yes, Micah? yes. Yeah, he was he was like a big guy for transmission. Um, and so yeah, I just knew that I, because I'm a musician, I knew the rights issue was just thorny, and I couldn't pretend it was my content if it wasn't so um but all that all that geared me towards sort of um understanding social media and this thing I tend to call social capital this this idea that if you have something that's of interest to people um and you have 
a targeted way of articulating it, whether it's via Twitter or a LinkedIn account or whatever, or a Facebook page. You can create these audiences and these connections with um, people. It's all very old hat now. I'm telling you stuff and everyone knows what I'm talking about. But in 2008, 2009, when I, when I was doing training courses in it, you know, pe- people were like, what is a Twitter? Mm. You know, I don't want to have a Twitter. What, why would I do that with my life? Yes. Uh, so it was, it was all those notions of, um, it was all those sort of ex- exploring times into, I guess, the, the marketing of brands and of content online so that you could create an audience and understanding what transaction value looked like in those spaces that led me eventually to creating Ascenti. So I had to pivot my podcasting business to a social media agency. And as I did that, I completely stepped away from programming all this time. I, you know, I did it proper, like the hard way. Um, so I was a, an age, you know, I was this agency owner, as it were. I had I had a couple of people that would I'd work alongside, and the tricky thing was everything was still fairly new at the time. So you could turn to you could turn to very large agencies that were trying to grapple with social media as well as, you know, what they normally did with print and TV and outdoor and get some training and support, or you could engage smaller agencies. So I always found this weird, weird mix where I'd be talking to a big corporate, like a company that makes um, paints and sort of floor coverings and things like that, like a multinational. And we'd work together and we'd create their first blog and that'd be all cool. But when it came to actually the mechanics of the strategy I was developing for them, it was always tricky on how we, understanding where I drew the line with what I did and what they could just start doing themselves in this early early stages of, of social so social media marketing as a as a thing that was sold. So I, I became more and more conscious that my ideas around you know this thing I call social capital, this idea that if you if you create something and put it on the internet, you would quite happily associate your your brand with it if it if it got interest, you know, if it got likes or got retweeted, and you could have a strategy to have one to one conversations with with people that would further the, the the goals of your brand regularly. If you did that, so all, all the all the things we know we now know and talk about and refer to as influence marketing, all that stuff. I was doing that and conscious that look, if I taught these people enough, they would just you know, I took myself out of the job. Um, I needed to find a, a mechanic around applications that did something of what I was suggesting. And, and that's really actually what Ascenti became. So I went to a, co- a conference at the church to go to um, in 2015, that was international. And they asked people to text in questions to an, you know, a mobile phone number for the Q&A session at the end of three days. So it was a three-day conference. At the end of three days, they were like, you know, if you want questions, you know, you need to have texted this number on the screen, see your questions. And it worked. We got to the Q&A section and people had conversations around the questions, but there was no context. You know, it was interesting. You could tell whether the person spoke English as a first language based on, you know, how they tapped the questions. But... Some questions were more relevant than others, and the the difficulty was you couldn't decide to not answer them because they were all you know being typed up and being presented as as they were sent to the lady who who volunteered her mobile phone number for them to be texted to her. And at the time, I remember thinking, I'm sure this is a this is a solution that a web app 
can solve. I'm sure we could have a simpler way of having everyone visit one web page and posting questions, and we could all see their questions. We could vote for them. And my social media had kicked in. If it's something that I'm proud of asking, I'll put it on my Twitter feed. And yeah, if you reward me for asking it in some way, I'd be like, yeah, let's tell the world about it. And Ascenti's beginnings came from that, like a little, yeah, a simple platform for posting questions to speakers. Um, and then it evolved massively from that. And I decided to write it because I, at the time I'd started, I'd started working as a software engineer. So the bit I'm, I've not mentioned just yet is that in between sort of starting to become aware of these suggestions I was, I was giving people social media strategies, you know, this is how you create a blog. Uh, this is how we set it up and this is how we link it to Twitter and this is how we manage your strategy for comms online because you now have this this thing called a blog. As I was doing that, I was, I was having to, you know, I was doing what a lot of people that get into freelance software development uh, comes come, come into that. Now it's Wix, but then it was all WordPress. Yes. Yeah. How people set up WordPress sites and write WordPress plugins and stuff. And and so I, I started programming to solve problems around what I was offering clients and it was then I really dealt with my imposter syndrome around programming because I had to learn a little bit you know on the job as it were um but as I did freelance roles I I got more skills that meant I could start doing contract roles I, I you know I had I could say I was you know a react developer I could say I was a PHP developer I could say um I worked with like now I can say I work with various cloud platforms, AWS, blah, blah, blah. So I could start presenting a, a CV that demonstrated um, a, a portfolio of work and of work experience on on projects for people in different programming languages. And all that led to me going, well, I've got time in between projects. And this thing, this question and answer thing as an idea, it would help me explore some of my ideas around uh, distributed programming. So I had this idea, a social tech idea around social commerce. That is actually what I, I've stopped the agency to, to start looking into. I started. I actually tried to um to partner with people at IBM around it. It was all. It was all like you know. I tried to do it the hard way, but it was all around helping I, people using specific type of e-commerce platform to sell on social media on Facebook particularly, and that. That led me into looking at concurrency and fault tolerance and, and distribution programming. So what happens when 200 people are looking on one page and they're interacting on one page? How do you how do you manage the, the comms under the hood? Um, and essentially what the, what Ascenti became was a distillation of some of the, those ideas because the programming language it's written in is called Elixir, which is a... It's based on the Erlang VM. I'm saying these things because there's there's some value in, in it. So the the Erlang VM is the virtual machine for Erlang, which is what WhatsApp's written in. So under the hood, there's the same support for multiple people connecting onto one server and nothing crashing on Ascentia there is on WhatsApp because of the programming language and the paradigms around fault tolerance and concurrency that that language gives you so I guess that's like the dotted history of like where I started off and the, the decisions I made to start programming a certain way amazing I think you, you you mentioned about creativity and oftentimes we don't we don't connect creativity and tech together 
And it'll be interesting to hear your views around how one can start to embark on projects. And and I think for anyone in business, uh, anyone who's an entrepreneur, you know, we've all had the last 18 months that have been a clear visual representation, life explanation in the fact that digital kept us connected and not just kept us connected, but also created avenues for us to stay connected. And what does the future look like? And and how do you start to lean towards tech within, you know, your clothing business or your creative venture to start to create these solutions? Because everyone talks about community, right? Um, and community being the new currency and audiences, et cetera, and how do you keep your audiences engaged? And you mentioned creativity, and I and I just wonder if there are any practical practical versions or examples of how this creativity within tech can be used for you know real life problems. Yeah, that's a really good question. That's a really good question because it it kind of involves me looking at it without the the lens and the perspective of okay I'm a programmer I'm a developer and I I have some experience in the software development life cycle and I can see how that can become a thing um I'll answer it this way so one of the things I do alongside have you know working as a software engineer and and working on Ascentes I, I put on these regular events called female tech founder they've been running since 2019 um it it was an evening event that happened in the center of Manchester. And it was all around um, women in tech, really, sharing their stories, sharing their journeys around creating, you know, being part of tech startups, creating a startup, having ideas around tech. And one of the people I met along um, in doing that, she actually spoke when we started doing online events um, as part of the lockdown last year, was a lady, uh, she's called Benedicta, Benedicta Banger. And she's based in the Midlands and she has, she essentially has, um, it's, it's a marketplace. That's all, that's the best way of, of describing it. It's called Blackbase and it's a marketplace for finding products that would suit black skin. And she curates it and it's, it's effectively like, um, a very select list of products she's identified and interacted with the owners uh, creators of and she's providing an online sort of marketplace for them and she's yeah you know she can tell she she can talk more about the the tech side of it she's not a coder herself but she's she's got enough knowledge to know what to do with with the platforms out there to create this this interface that people can use and buy from and when you were asking around how to use tech I just thought she's a good example because there, there are more and more platform, platforms out there for exploring e-commerce and, you know, engaging an audience. And the creativity side of things, I think for me, when you start thinking about how you can have a sustainable business on the back of your idea. So I had to pivot from a video podcast to a social media agency and then became a developer to try and protect an idea I had around using e-commerce platforms, uh, one of which would be one written by IBM, using that within a social network. And why did that happen? Because I was having conversations with, I think it was Debenhams or some of Topshop. I, I managed to get these conversations with like retailers. 
This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide, and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. In your stories, you've you've definitely managed to speak with much larger brands. And, you know, to be fair, with with Ascenti, you know, you've worked with everyone from PwC to Business Card, and I'm sure so much more, right? There's something to be said with, you know, people going, but how do you get that? You know, I'm coding in my room. I've built some great websites for a few clients, but I'm not able to have a conversation with IBM. Yeah, so so all, all good questions. So um, with the IBM conversation, I think IBM got an office in Manchester in sale, um, and the connection was with um, I believe it was Topshop at the time. So if I recall correct, correctly, at the time there were these very specific marketing type conferences you could go to, and I I think what happened was I got to speak at one of them, and. I presented something around sort of social media and social media marketing strategy. I was still, I still had the, the, you know, I'm, I've pivoted into an agency head on. And, um, at the time, I, I, I think I got a business card from someone from Topshop. And what we were doing at the time was having conversations around, um, what would happen if you could put some of your bestseller items onto a Facebook page and run a campaign and just see what happens with whether people would, interact with it this is like um this is probably 2012 20, yeah at least uh, 2013 maybe a bit and, and so facebook is a thing but people didn't think of buying things on facebook um and so those conversations got me into a place where they were able to share a little bit of what their tech background was as a as a retailer selling online and that's where we realized if they're using IBM Westfair for, for commerce, I'd have to have a conversation with a, a website developer, someone linked with IBM around this project, because at some point I'd have to use APIs or something. There would be a connecting between a social network and this e-commerce platform. So it, I guess I've given you the detail of how that happened, but some of it is really down to just uh, being bold enough to just put the email together you you could read it 20 million times if you want. I did that. Read it, you know, top to bottom, bottom to up, top, whatever. But at some point, if you've got a, a name contact and you found a way of speaking to someone, contact them with your idea and your suggestion. And you might have to do it. Less. I think with the, with the social commerce idea, I also did a lot of research online for those... Um, thought leaders in, in, in retail and I managed to sort of get the, the contact details about, you know, try, try and call the companies and then try and speak to them. And eventually someone after like leaving voicemails and some, or whatever, someone would eventually get back to me. Um, I think, I think actually for a lot of the top shop and Debenham stuff, um, there was those conversations with people face to face, but some of it began by just me methodically trying to email as many of the high street brands I knew that were on Facebook that had researched their web pages and their Facebook pages and stuff. So there's there's a bit of that. There's a bit of just grafting it out and um, reaching out to people. 
Thank you. I think um, oftentimes, like you said, you know, put together your proposals and just embrace rejection, right? And just start sending emails until someone responds. Um, the first person says no, you take that no, get better, um, and keep going till someone, till, till you get to a point where you're having a negotiation or, or a conversation. You kind of talked a little bit about this, but I, I think I would love for us to talk about representation, especially where we see in general, globally, less than 1% of, you know, companies have female founders. I'm sure the stats are, uh, are probably similar, if not worse in the tech space, but representation and ownership, um, because, you know, there are all sorts of conversations around careers in coding now. There is conversations around opportunity. There's conversations around economic independence, but not so much around representation and ownership. And and what does that look like in the tech space? Yeah, I think when we were speaking before, I, I talked a little bit about how my perspective, having you know, had that stint with the startup from Manchester University's computer science department, that stint there of dealing with imposter syndrome as a developer, but having to to learn properly, you know, the fundamentals of like data structures and algorithms and basically what what people that I was sitting with had learned at university, I kind of had to learn on the fly at work because my, my course had been very much focused on the electronic engineering side of things. So I said all that then to say that there's, there's two things around representation. Um, I'll touch on ownership shortly, but the reality is that tech as an industry and companies that are based around technology, they're doing so around some intellectual property that has been developed by someone who's tried to solve a problem and, and found ways of piecing together tools Um you know, we call technology as a catch-all, but it might be starting off with a, an old computer that they've, um, you know, converted into a Linux box and they've taught themselves some code and, and you know, they've pieced together enough to, to put something online with it and gone through the process of understanding, you know, to serve lots and lots of people online. This is how many more computers I need to buy or how many more servers I need to throw at this problem. And I guess what I'm saying is that there is a, there's this like potentially like a hobbyist beginning turning uh, that takes in like a tinkerer aspect and tinkerer mentality and adds to that some entrepreneurial flair, some, you know, you know, at some point someone goes and pitches to a, a, an investor quite often in, in tech. So others, you know, pick through of, of bootstrapping, but there is a process because what you're essentially, what you're trying to do, even though it, um, becomes a massively useful convenience tool for people before it exists somebody has to write it someone has to um develop it in such a way that it won't fall over when lots of people use it and that mindset um is important because underlying all of that sometimes is and i guess we don't really think about it this way and this is actually one of the first times i'm i'm articulating because i'm becoming aware of it underlying all of that is the the access to having that mindset and not being burdened about earning money, you know, to keep food on the table, to clothe kids and to get people their bus passes. So I, when, when I was asked about this 
and and I was being asked about this around some really dire stats from the British Business Bank around um, women founders that weren't white. Um, and the person asking me was had the best intention at heart, but the, the, the figures were dire. And, and and the reason you had to explain it, you know, was really down to this. There were there are differences in um, I would say in historicity in uh, the best word is establishment for economic independence for different demographics. So one of the stats that document was, was referring to is the fact that if you looked at businesses started by women from Asian communities, um, that's like the Indian subcontinent, or the if you, if you look at sort of the um, Chinese or Japanese demographic, the stats and the issues they've dealt with are very different to the ones that are for, for founders from a black or African or Afro-Caribbean a Caribbean sort of background, yeah, indeed, because their their historicity in 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 terms of having enough accumulated time and accumulated wealth within the West is just different. So I, I give an example. So there's there's in Manchester is a great example. There's there's the wealth of I guess companies that have come from the history that Manchester has within sort of fashion and retail, so that your boohoos, your misguideds, there's, um, and those companies will have roots within kind of the textile industry that the Northwest is known for. So, you know, there's, there's parts of Leicester and parts of the Northwest that still make a lot of clothing. Um, so when you're adding an online e-commerce strategy to companies that have existed for a while in and have traded in, you know, uh, wholesale textiles, it's a no-brainer. You've already got like a, an established base there for someone who's starting up a business um, in hair products for Afro hair, for example. They're doing this, and I'm talking about people who are doing this for real. They're doing this as a side hustle with a day job. Yeah, yeah. And they are like maybe second generation Africans, if that's quite often their first generation yeah. Africans. They, they don't have the they don't have the cumulative wealth and experience of like. Generations having, um, you know, parents that like ran takeaway businesses or restaurant businesses. I, yeah. I went to. I know. I know someone whose mum, uh, whose parents ran a Chinese takeaway, and she said like the amount of money that they handle in cash, um, and the whole person running. I mean, they hardly ever sleep. It's a difficult lifestyle, but the the pro- the progression that it gives their children is incredible because they have a financial base that's just different. So a lot of people overlook the fact that. What we kind of see as um, differences in um, accumulated wealth and different demographics is actually because some demographics have had a specific amount of time serving, you know, running corner shops, running like restaurants and like just grinding it out. And they've now got enough capital where if if a son wants to start a business, yeah. the grandma can say, I can, I can back you with that. If you yeah. want to do this internet thing, I can help you. Well, even just the understanding of knowing what starting a business looks like. So there's not the, the underestimation of time or what success would look like if even if they decide to go down that route. Indeed, indeed. And so I said all that to say with representation, I guess. You kind of have to have the bandwidth um, as a person to take into consideration all that comes with starting a tech business, having this tech idea. And you can bootstrap it, uh, 
you could also try and raise funding. But being in a place where you're not necessarily um, going to like get kicked out of your flat because you have this idea is not an advantage that a lot of people from minority ethnic groups have. That's just the reality of it. And so that, that has an effect on representation. That's the reality of it. And I guess that also has a knock-on effect on ownership. And I'm not saying that these things will not change. I'm just saying it's worth bearing that in mind. Um, and that study by the British Business Bank was like made for diary because it said in some parts that the, the people from some of the ethnic minority groups were better educated than the people that were starting businesses that were not, that were white. They had more skills, but I think there was just other cultural things that meant, I personally think perspectives weren't the same, you know, perspectives around, you know, how long can I stick at this before I just need to get a job or I I can't explain to my parents after I've done all, you know, six years of this amazing degree, I'm just going to be a startup founder, like, I mean, how, how how can I explain that? So there's all those issues to be aware of, I guess. And I said that when we we're talking earlier, because I, I was saying that, that this lens of, you know, inclusion and, and um, increasing diversity of black girls coding, to use the, the phrase that will sort of allude to specific types of um, groups and um, organizations dealing with that, they, they, that can't happen in in isolation, you kind of have to understand where people's aspirations and and the reality of what they're living through sort of meet and change perspective. So one thing I'm, I'm involved in a lot at the moment is a, a community, well, it's an organisation called Fond Her North. It's a collective of 28 plus women in investment, in sort of angel investing, seed investing and sort of institutional stuff, uh, private equity, uh, etc. And I've I've gotten involved involved in it through what I've been doing with Female Tech Founder. And it's just been eye-opening. So I started doing Female Tech Founder, so I understood, you know, what does a tech founder have to do, you know, if she's a woman? Let's not let's not talk about the black woman bit. Let's just say, let's just deal with the woman bit. Um, and I'll, you know, put on these events and I'd, you know, we'd have VCs tell us how to do our pitch decks. Uh, we'd have pitch, comp- well, pitch examples and pitch sessions and people would sort of share their experiences as founders. And one of the things I, I one of the reasons I did it was I, I recognized I couldn't expect to sort of succeed as a black woman without having as many people learning from my process as possible and other people being part of that journey because there's more, more women affected by this. And that's got me kind of on the radar for the people that um, was starting Fund Her North, and this is and that's it's actually through that network I heard about the the report by British Business Bank on sort of female founders that were non-white. You can Google it if you don't quote those words, but it does exist and it is published last year, so it's not that old. Um, but the gist of it is, in being part of that network, I've started to understand actually this is really very much around mindset uh, and timing as well. So. I'm so thankful that I didn't decide to try raising funding in 2018 or, or 2017 because we don't have this massive change in perspective that, you know, words like representation and ownership and, you know, you know, even things like black girls coding, that was not a notion then. So I would have, I would have been one of those horrible statistics that nobody ever talked about because the world just didn't even see me as a thing, but, but the world has changed and, and there's people seeking out people who have um, good ideas 
and and are willing to explore like you know don't assume because it the word seed and investor are involved that you have to have a pitch deck that rivals Mark Zuckerberg's when he was pitching Facebook because your face is black and you're just going to struggle. It doesn't necessarily work. I think more of the perspective of actually there are people doing this all the time. They don't have two heads, like my mum would say. Like, you know, there's, there's people pitching companies. Okay, yes, they happen to be white and male. But if you have a good idea and, a, and an, an expectation around learning what it involves to pitch that idea, so have you learned about the market opportunity? Have you learned about product market fit? Do you know what the problem this is going to be solving actually delivers for an audience? I'm learning all these things myself for a and for other things I'm developing, but are you able to sort of start articulating that in a way that would help others learn along alongside you doing it? And are you willing to sort of have a mindset that says, okay, I have this idea and it's hard because it's hard to be a startup founder, but I don't, I'm not going to quit because at some point it's going to be like this idea or a job, you know, bicycle um, delivery person for just eat because I need to eat. You have to kind of have the mindset that even though you're, you might be going through the grind at the moment, your idea is valid and you will be able to sustain and, and deliver it if you're able to get that capital that supports you doing that. And I can't promise for anyone that it's going to be easy, but it's that mindset that goes, okay, this is not just for white people. And that's, that's one of the things I'm really into. Sort of yeah. And, and, and I think, I think there's also the understanding that that representation can begin with you. And so perhaps those conversations aren't happening because there's no one there to even begin them. And I would say that's probably one of the driving forces for me behind the podcast, which is can't then have conversations saying we don't have this or there is no place for this and, and, and no one's taking up the responsibility to create it. Because I think it's important that we're also held accountable for the things we complain about um, because we, we're only there for change. And, and, I, and I think there is a clear economic deficit and there is an underestimation in how much it costs to become a startup in time and in money and seldomly are we equipped in the same way as as first generation second generation whatever african african black caribbean any version that you 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 sort of work it out to be right there's very there's only a small percentage and then if you look at the general statistics as a whole even just women in general especially in in tech you know less than 2% will study a technically focused degree i i remember actually during my first degree in informatics and i think there was myself there were four girls in total in my year. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. Yeah. How many were you all um, together? I think we were four. I mean, in, 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 I in, right. in the year, in, in the year. So, yeah. So, and we weren't all doing the same degree. So on my specific degree, I was the only girl, but you know, you would take modules with, with other girls. Right. And in that year, there was only four of us. And it's insane to think about it. Now there was a Greek girl and there were, two other English girls. And then there was one other English girl, but she was doing a 
she was on like a business and something course. And so we only saw her for a few modules, but not the same. And thinking back now, you don't realize how isolating that feels because as a kid, you just accept that, you know, you're on a guy's course, you know, and you sit through, you know, conversations and, and, and your goal is just, you want to fit in, right. You want to fit in and, and also have the camaraderie. And I'm sure as, as you've gone along in your career, um, most of the rooms that you walk into, not only there's probably maybe if you're lucky, one other woman in the room, but you're most likely the only black person in the room. And then having to steer conversations, even into causes that you're passionate about or some level of creating conversations around how do we make this more available? Um, My hope is that you know, someone out there who has an interest in tech listens to this episode with you and understands that, it, you know, there are other people out there and it can also begin with them and that creativity isn't just limited to the arts and, and can be employed in, in, in the technical space too. Yeah, well, that's that's amazing. I totally hear what you're saying. There's, I think there was like five girls on my course out of 110 at York and that was, you know, full of, the four or five years I was at that time, we were all together until people, did, some people did three-year degrees, some did, people did four. So I totally relate to what you're saying. And uh, as a software engineer that was a, as a contractor, I, I totally relate to what you're saying. And I, I'm conscious as well, like people are, you know, starting their careers in this post-pandemic world where sometimes they'll be onboarded online. You know, they're doing interviews online and it's not even in person. And I'm really conscious of that, you know, of, of graduates, people that, you know, sort of setting it out, doing degrees and, you know, um, part-time jobs at Nando's or whatever for three or four years. And then suddenly you're thrust into this like marketplace, this race to get a graduate job. And, it, and it, things are really competitive. And if you're doing that comp- competition via teams meet teams calls or you know zoom call so many things stacked up against you if you if you don't have the confidence in 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 being able to articulate you know what you want to do and what your aspirations are so yeah it's a, it's a really tricky time I'm, I'm conscious of this a lot and I, I try and sort of engage with people um, in communities that are trying to help sort of graduates get into certain jobs because it's you know yes zoom is democratic democratized meetings but people's faces can very very clearly not fit (laughs) because of zoom and it's knowing how to navigate you know the opportunity you have as well because that's the thing you know George Floyd has changed everything forever uh, and and people now you do have something to bring to the table whatever hue you are whatever color you are there is an expectation that okay maybe this person might have had disadvantage let's acknowledge that you know, in our interactions with them. So, so there is some, there is positives in there. I guess what I'm trying to articulate is um, for people that are starting out, especially in tech careers and stuff or corporate careers, there's a lot of, of info online around, you know, acing your interviews, learning about technical tests, technical aptitude tests. There's loads of people that are writing blog posts about how they got their first job at, you know, wherever, Google, Facebook, whatever. Just spend time learning that and be confident. You know, the, the world is still your oyster because of the times we live in, no matter how it might appear. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Where can people find you? <laughs> so um, asante.com is the URL for the 
the company website. I'm also on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter as This Is Chi Chi and on most platforms as This Is Chi Chi. I do do quite a lot with um, Fonte Her North, I've already mentioned, female tech founder, these communities of, of women in tech or women supporting other women to, to get funding and they do regular events. Um, I help organize the events for Fonte Her North. So uh, yeah, I'm accessible, you know, in some Zoom room somewhere if you look hard enough. And it's free to, to sign up on Eventbrite, et cetera, et cetera. Amazing. Thank you so much, Gigi, for a great episode. I hope this episode has given someone some inspiration to, to keep going. Thank you. Thank you, Zizi. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really good fun. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Third Culture Africans. We are building a community of leaders and game changers and would love you to join in the conversation on thirdcultureafricans.com. Subscribe for news, for tips and more useful resources on today's topic and more episodes to ignite and inspire your entrepreneurial journey. Carry on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Third Culture Africans. Your ratings and reviews are important to us, so please leave one on your favorite streaming platform and help us amplify our voices. Until next time, you are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started.